Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about strokes, how to act fast, and what is React. Also talking about the new over-the-counter birth control pill available in the U.S. Should Canada follow suit? Ever wonder if all of our digital viewing is impacting eye health and strain? Our eyes are on it. Plus, are you financially whole? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. By the time the show airs tonight, another person will have had a stroke. Strokes are the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and a significant cause of disability. My guest on the line is going to help us to understand the odds for having a stroke, what exactly a stroke is, and evidence-based steps that can lower your risk, how to recognize the early signs of stroke, and what to do to get rapid brain-saving treatment, because that's what it's all about. My guest is none other than Dr. Jennifer Yao. She's a stroke expert and also division head, physical medicine and rehabilitation at GF Strong in Vancouver, British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Yao. Hello, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm delighted to have you on for this extremely important subject that I think deserves a lot of uh, airtime, if you will, and it because there's so much information that can help people and pre- for people to prevent a stroke. I'm always talking to people about blood pressure, um, but let's start with what exactly is a stroke? Yeah, a stroke is essentially what happens to your brain when there's an interruption in the blood supply to those brain cells. So it's uh, it could be a, a blockage of the circulation to the brain, or sometimes we have actually bleeding or disruption of that blood flow. And so what are the causes of a stroke? What, when do people have a stroke, and, and how can a stroke be prevented? Oh, that's a lot to unpack there. Um, yes. <laughs> Definitely. I'll have you do all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, unfortunately, uh, stroke is related to as we get older. So there is a higher risk for all of us as we get older in terms of having a stroke. And uh, as I said earlier, the causes of stroke could be multiple, but a lot of times it's caused by a blockage in the arteries that is feeding the brain cells. And that could be because over time there has been a buildup of plaque and that sort of thing, clots inside the vessel that led to the blockage, or sometimes the blockage has or the clot has come from elsewhere, like the heart, for example, uh, particularly in those who have irregular heart rates. And then finally, there are those who have structural anomalies in their blood vessels in the brain, and that can lead to bleeding. But I think some of the common risk factors for all of these kinds of strokes, as you said earlier, high blood pressure is one of the primary risk factors that we at least have some control over. And so it's very important for people with high blood pressure to keep that under good control at all times. Other risk factors would include things like diabetes and high cholesterol, smoking, etc. Very similar to risk factors for heart attacks. Mm-hmm. And, and how can people keep their blood pressure under control? Uh, oftentimes when I speak to patients and I ask them about their blood pressure or what it is, they'll just say, oh, it's fine, or my doctor said it was fine. They have no idea what it was. They often will say it's, they'll give me one number um, as opposed to two. Mm-hmm. What are the, the kinds of things that people can do to keep their blood pressure, you know, around 120 over 80, give or, give or take a few? Right. Well, the first thing is, I think, for those who have blood pressure concerns, you should definitely have some way of checking this at home yourself, be it with machine that you have or or perhaps at your local drugstore. So you can monitor it and take charge of it. The next thing then is to follow your doctor's advice, particularly when it comes to taking the medications. And because most people, you don't feel a high blood pressure. um, So it's easy to feel like, you know, why am I taking this pill? But it actually is helping to keep that pressure under control over long periods of time, which is what we want. And finally, exercise is always a good thing to do because it helps to lower your blood pressure and has multiple other benefits as well. So I think those things together will help. And and should people be taking their blood pressure, especially as they age uh, on the daily at home? What, what, how best should they monitor? Yeah, if you are changing your medications or if you had a period of unstable blood pressure, you could do it daily. But if things are looking pretty stable, like the numbers haven't been changing a lot, you can just do it two or three times a week. We usually suggest people do it first thing in the morning when they get up um, and just keep a little record of it so you can look back. 
Mm-hmm. And what's the best way for people to take their blood pressure? Is it after they're running around shopping? Is it when after they've had a, an argument with their spouse? Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing the answers to those two are no. <laughs> yeah. um, see, I'll show you what my blood pressure is. No. <laughs> um, so is there, you know, mm-hmm. should they lie down? What, what do you, how do you advise so they get the most accurate blood pressure? Yes. So, so first of all, no, you don't want to be in any kind of agitated state or exercising or shortly after exercise, because those are times when your blood pressure may naturally be a little bit higher. But we usually ask people to do it, you know, when they get up in the morning, you can do it right uh, at the bedside. Um, sitting up is fine. You don't have to do it lying down as long as you are you know, comfortable. But around the same time of day. Uh, the reason we say morning is because there are some cyclical uh, changes in blood pressure. And uh, cortisol levels tend to be highest early in the morning. And so if you are to have high blood pressure, that's probably a more likely time where you'll catch it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then although stroke remains one of the leading causes of death in our country, and and, but before I get into that, I want to ask you this, stroke is can be such a tremendous disability to people. That's what I try to get Mm -hmm. across to my patients anyway. If you can prevent having a stroke, you want to do this because you can be left with weakness, paralysis, speech Mm -hmm. issues, thought process issues. You know, it's a brain attack. Um, It's such a serious thing that can be prevented. And one of the ways to prevent it is recognizing stroke onset. Tell me a little bit about FAST. Yeah, for sure. So so FAST is an acronym that has been out there for some time. It's to help people remember some of the very common symptoms of stroke onset. So F stands for face, so drooping of the face, so sudden weakness that causes asymmetry and drooping in the face. Uh, a is for arm, so similarly, you know, if you can't pick up an arm for a reason or you feel like the arm is, is terribly weak all of a sudden, that's something to look out for. Uh, speech uh, is the S in FAST. And so if you notice someone suddenly slurring their speech or they can't get quite the right words out or they don't seem to understand what people are saying to them, so that again could be a sign of stroke. And finally, T for time, which is if you think someone is having a stroke, you really ought to get them that medical attention right away. So you want to call 911, get them to an emergency department where they can be evaluated immediately to see if they are having a stroke. And that would help them become eligible for any clot-busting drugs that are, that are available to help decrease the impact of that stroke. And, and so if they're eligible for those medications, is there a particular time frame where they need to have that medication administered so that it is optimal? Yes. So uh, I always tell people, if you think someone is having a stroke, take a note of the time, because ideally you want to get to them within about three to six hours of the onset uh, of symptoms. Beyond that, it can be much riskier, and I think it takes more thought and careful decision-making as to whether or not they would be eligible for some of these procedures. Um, but yes, you want to get them there as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, such important information, and <clears throat> information. excuse me, and you want to call 911 fast as well, and you want to act fast, I, I would imagine. Totally. And tell them, tell the ambulance people that you think someone is having a stroke because that will trigger a whole series of um, processes that would get the person into the hospital right away. My guest is Dr. Jennifer Yao, Division Head, Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at GF Strong in Vancouver, British Columbia. If you have any questions or uh, you call or text one 877 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Thank you so much, Dr. Yao, for staying on the line. Uh, mm-hmm. We're talking about stroke, stroke wrist, how to act fast. What do you do when somebody has a stroke? Um, and what exactly is REACT, the acronym REACT? Mm-hmm. Well, REACT is referring to uh, a, a condition that sometimes people will get after stroke, uh, and that's something called spasticity. And spasticity is simply um, your muscles becoming uh, stiffer, and it's contracting more than it should. And this is not under your control. This is because it's a lost connection with the brain as a result of the stroke. Um, so REACT is another acronym, and the R stands for restricted movement. So if you notice that there is limiting movement, your joints are not able to move as they used to, that could be a sign of spasticity. Okay. E is for early detection, and so the earlier we can detect it, 
the sooner we can treat it and monitor it, and you'll have better results. Wonderful. I'm going to stop you right there because we have a caller on the line. Um, hello? I want to ask if the parameters for an ideal blood pressure varies between age groups. Say, for example, younger adult, middle-aged, senior. Thank you. That's such a great question. Dr. Yao? Yeah, that is a great question. You know, interestingly, the parameters don't vary that much, really, or at all for age groups. Um, But what does make a difference are other conditions. So, for example, if you have diabetes at the same time as hypertension or high blood pressure, then we are usually a little bit more strict on on trying to keep the pressure under better control. So we try to keep that top number, the systolic number, under 130. Normally, for adults who simply have high blood pressure by itself, we try to keep things under 140 for sure for that higher number systolic pressure. The lower number, generally, we like to see it um, below 90. Uh, so that would be ideal. So the parameter guidelines will vary, most of depending on the comorbidities than the actual age. Excellent. Thank you so much. I just wanted to um, read a text message here, uh, largely about GF Strong, where you're working. I like to give a shout out to healthcare workers, especially frontline workers. And this listener says, I've been at GF Strong after seriously broken lumbar spine. Amazing. Um and wonderful staff there, really life-saving. So um, thank you for your work. So sorry that uh, we interrupted your um, REACT. Um, So you went through the R, restricted movement, and then E, early detection and intervention is best. So I guess we're on A now. Yeah, correct. So A stands for altered function. So because spasticity doesn't occur immediately, it often sets in gradually over the next several weeks or sometimes even months. So if somebody notices after stroke that they're losing some of their function where, you know, particularly on the affected side where they were able to do some things and now it's getting tougher, it could be because of spasticity setting in. The C in the REACT stands for changes in muscle stiffness or posture. So if you're finding that your limb, usually an arm or leg, keeps going into a certain position, particularly when you're moving or yawning, that often is a sign of some spasticity happening. And finally, the T stands for talk, which is to talk to your doctor or to your rehab specialist or therapist and to ask some questions and hopefully someone can then pick up on what's happening and get you the the right type of intervention. And what are some of those interventions, Dr. Yao? Because obviously the message here is if things change in your functional status, um, you know, speak up, talk to your doctor. Um, but are there things that can be done to improve? This, this listener also wrote um, at GF Strong, they push hard, but I can walk now. Thank you, David from Kelowna. Um, before we get to the, my question, there's another caller on the yeah. line. Um, hello? Hello, how are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. I, I just wanted a, a quick a question for the doctor. Uh, as the older people get older, they get a lot of tingling in their arms, and it comes and goes in their fingers and in their arms. Is that anything to do with uh, uh, a, a stroke or any kind of heart disease? Oh, great question. So first of all, you know, tingling in the arm is not normal, really, under any circumstances, uh, but there could be potentially many different causes. Stroke symptoms generally tend to come on very suddenly, and they don't tend to go away. Um, Sometimes you do get sort of a a mini-stroke or what we call a transient ischemic attack, or TIA, that has very limited symptomology. But typically, the the stroke symptoms, once they set in, they, they don't leave you. So if you're getting this sort of waxing and waning tingling, it could be from other sources, though. So it could be nerves in your neck or it's coming out um, into your arms, or it could even be something quite peripheral like uh, carpal tunnel syndrome or something like that, depending on the distribution. So I would say, you know, definitely go talk to your doctor about it. You probably would need some tests to take a closer look at how the nerves are, are working in your arm. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for the call. Lots of great questions tonight. Um, yeah, you know, I think the the a great point you made there, Dr. Yao, is that, you know, tingling and sensations, it's not normal. <laughs> and whenever there's something that's not normal, try not to self-diagnose, but talk to your doctor. Um, we only have about uh, a minute left or so. Um, sure. what, would, what message would you give to people out there 
who are at higher risk for stroke or um, like to prevent stroke? What do you think is the most important thing? Yeah. So I I think, you know, for those, of course, who are worried about stroke is, you know, you need to look after yourself, manage those risk factors that we talked about earlier, and, you know, develop that dialogue with your health professional. For people who have already had a stroke and are living with the consequences, you know, just remember that you are not a stroke. The stroke does not define you. And there are so many things you can do to help improve your day-to-day function and to to not give up. Uh, I think that would be the main message. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. And can people get anywhere place where you would suggest people to get more information? Sure. If you look into uh, online, there is the uh, Canadian um, Heart and Stroke Foundation sites. The Stroke Best Practice sites have lots of excellent information for, for people wanting to find out more about stroke. If you recall, Roe v. Wade um, was reversed uh, recently in the U.S., and that's caused a lot of concern for people in Canada as well. But recently, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, approved the country's first over-the-counter daily oral contraceptive, and that has prompted experts to question when Canadians should receive the should receive the same access. What do you think? Do you think that Canadians should have access to an over-the-counter daily oral contraceptive? The number to call or text, 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. The approved tablet in the U.S. is called the O-Pill. It contains progestin, norgestrel, and will be available in the U.S., without a prescription from a doctor or a healthcare provider. It's expected to be more effective than other over-the-counter contraceptive methods that are currently available, which include condoms. Um, If you uh, recall, condoms can prevent unintended pregnancy. Um, This is a very important decision. And, um, you know, this is something that really affects all of us. And this decision by the FDA is is quite an important decision. And, I, I mean, hopefully Canada will, you know, take a page out of the U.S.'s book and will similarly, similarly consider this next step because it could improve access to contraception for people in our country, across our country, and it would give people much more choice. Non-prescription birth control pills are not currently available in Canada. But, you know, sometimes Health Canada approves certain medications prior to the FDA approving certain medications. but, you know, the FDA's decision is not unlike Canada's approval for some progesterone-only emergency contraception pills. So that's plan B. It contains one and a half milligrams of the hormone levonorgestrel. It's another type of progesterone, and that's available over-the-counter at most pharmacies. Um, the U.S.-approved pill is a mini pill or progestin-only so it doesn't combine with the hormone estrogen. Combination pills carry a risk of blood clots and stroke for some. We were just talking about stroke. Um, They're not available over the counter in the U.S. or Canada, and they do still require a prescription. But this is a big change in access to contraceptive care. And, you know, this will help to prevent the barriers that exist for people um, in access to getting, gaining access to uh, contraceptive care and to make choices about their lives, choices about um, their careers, choices about when they want to start a family. Um, it gives people a lot more freedom. And, um, you know, so it's, it's very interesting. So there is a podcast series called Abortion, and it's about um, normalizing, having the conversation about um, people having uh, terminations. But, you know, it's not a subject that, uh, although it's covered quite a bit or touched upon a lot in media, it's not like a media scan picks it up in Canada and the U.S., but you know, it's not a subject that is discussed quite often. And this underscores a recent Ipsos poll that was conducted with 1,139 Canadian women between the ages of 16 and 50. This particular poll 
found that only 44% of Canadian women know the difference between emergency contraception, the morning after pill, and the abortion pill. 44%. Less than half of Canadian women know the difference between this. We need more education on this. We need to educate women so that they can have more choices and we can advance the progress of women in this country. And education about this is so important. In this particular Ipsos poll stud, uh, survey as well, conducted, as I mentioned, with 1,139 women, so a fairly robust sample size, 8 in 10 expressed strong support for a choice of abortion methods to be available and accessible. And, and that's the big um, big difference there is that accessibility, not, we, we don't have a quality in terms of accessibility to healthcare in this country. You know, if you're living in a rural area or um, oftentimes if you're of lower socioeconomic status, you know, there are different things that impact your accessibility to healthcare, regardless of the type of healthcare that it is. Um, and especially when it comes to women's health. And we know we have lots of issues around women's health. Um, but you know what I heard? I was doing a talk back East and I, I spoke to women first and then I spoke to men um, because I feel like when I speak to men and women at the same time, it just, the talk just doesn't go well. Oftentimes, people want me to talk to the men and women about healthcare and I just find that people are shy to discuss some of their um, healthcare concerns and so they won't raise their hand. Oftentimes I do talks at universities and um, oftentimes it's the staff and they don't want it, this professor to know that they have this particular issue, this male professor or this female um, professor. And so it's just a little too close for comfort. But what I learned there back East and, and it was, um, you know, it wasn't a metropolitan area, big metropolitan area, but the men were talking about how they have difficulty accessing healthcare as well. And in part because it's not a big metropolitan area, it was a bit more rural, it's a bit more isolated, if you will. And so it was interesting to hear men's perspective. They also talked about, we know that oftentimes women are dismissed in healthcare, but Apparently, men are dismissed as well. Of course, we know that happens. You know, sometimes you can go to your doctor and you can say that you have a particular health concern and then they can just brush it off. Or if you want to, you know, do some preventive health and they can say, oh, don't even bother. Or, you know, um, perhaps what you're experiencing is in your head. Um, oftentimes, women. Um, are told that, but men are told that as well. And so it was interesting to hear this, you know, fairly large group of, of men, you know, a hundred maybe in the off, in the audience, maybe a hundred, 150 um, of well-educated men who were just saying that they didn't have access to healthcare. And oftentimes when they did actually speak to the doctors, they felt that they were being dismissed. So very interesting. It doesn't just happen to women. We know um, that that is a concern for women. Oftentimes women are told it's anxiety. Um, I had a patient recently, a male patient, who said that he was told what he had was anxiety and it turned out not to be anxiety. Um, he did have a, a, a medical issue. He had uh, sarcoidosis, um, which we'll talk about in an upcoming show because, um, you know, a number of people I've heard of recently having sarcoidosis and that can be... Um, you know, it can look like something else. It can look like a number of different healthcare conditions. So it's a very interesting one. But, but this particular person was initially told he had uh, anxiety. So have you ever been told that you had anxiety? Have you ever been dismissed by your doctor? What is your feeling about healthcare in this country? Um, one 399 That's one 399 Um, you know, the, the other thing is, um, according to this particular Ipsos poll, which was conducted, as I mentioned, with a large number of Canadian women between the ages of 16 and 50, 62% are concerned about their reproductive rights in Canada after the repeal of Roe v. Wade in the U.S., which is very interesting to me. Um, it's just another worry. It's just another concern um, for um women in this country to be concerned about their rights. Um, somehow, um, 
reproductive rights have, are under government control. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm certain we've, we've certainly had issues in this country and um, we, you know, it's, it's understandable that people would fear um, concern and be concerned about their reproductive rights after the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Can that happen here? Of course it can. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just something that's, you know, very interesting. We have to keep our eyes on it and we have to, um, you know, we have to make sure that we have access to health care and we need to know what the problem is, which is why these surveys that are conducted are can be very helpful and can uncover certain things about healthcare that um, can make access and um, availability much better uh, for women and for people generally, regardless of um, whether you're male, female, they, um, whatever type of health care that you need. I mean, we have a lot of issues with health care in this country, um, access to health care. We're seeing uh, people being sent down to the U.S. to have their radiation therapy done. We're seeing long lines for surgeries. We're seeing, um, you know, people in hallways in hospitals. Um, we're seeing people getting discharged early. We're seeing a backup of beds. There are so many issues in in the hospital system. But on the other hand, you know, um, it's been it's got advantages and it's got its disadvantages as well. I'm not sure how you feel about um, the healthcare in this country, but I think it's something that we need to protect. And, um, you know, it's something that Canadians value and Canadians care a lot about. And there is a lot we can do, especially in terms of prevention, uh, so that we are the healthiest, that you are the healthiest person. One way is listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. <laughs> Hopefully, I try to get experts on to help to educate you so that you can live your best life and that you can, um, you know, if you have a question or have an idea or a thought, like the gentleman who called in earlier about tingling sensations. And, you know, I got the sense that um, he maybe thought that was normal. But, you know, any change in your physical condition, you know, warrants a conversation with your doctor. If you're not satisfied, get a second opinion. But, you know, stay on it because you deserve to will to live well and life is to be enjoyed not endured and there are treatments for uh, issues and concerns and you know you might be surprised at at what it is that you're suffering with or there might be some underlying thing um, you know you might have a, a symptom for example like anemia that's a symptom not necessarily a condition and so you got to find out why you have anemia why are you having to have iron infusion so anyway we've got to uncover a lot and uh, just on the show we're just I know we're just cutting the tip of the iceberg here but Anyway, hopefully it empowers you and it gets you heading off to your doctor to talk about anything that ails you. We're going to start out with a caller. We have Bob from Kettleby, Ontario. Good evening, Bob. Good evening. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited I found this program. And Aww. I Pass it on to other people. Thank you. But I decided to call tonight because uh, about two months ago I had open heart surgery. Oh. I'm, I'm 77 years old. Um, it was self-induced. I smoked for 60 years, and you know I ate the fat food, so I'm, oh. I paid the price. <laughs> but uh, but uh, oh. like I'm also but you enjoyed but you enjoyed it. I you enjoyed it. I bet. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I'm also a cancer survivor, and wow. one of the one of the supplements that I used was uh, was turmeric and the curcumin, yeah. which is in turmeric. Mm -hmm. And because it's because it's a blood thinner, and I'm presently on a, um, a blood thinner because part of my medication for mm -hmm. my uh, for my heart problem. I'm sort of hesitant to take it, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm starting to take it, and I'll take my chances because I know that stuff saved my life. When I was battling cancer. Well, you know, take... yeah, go ahead. Pardon? You still there? Go ahead. Yeah, 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 I'm here. I was going to suggest that you speak to your doctor about, since you're on blood thinners and turmeric uh, can well, thin the blood as well, it might impact your levels. 
Yes, no, I understand that. But when I mentioned that to my cardiac doctor, mm-hmm. uh, they don't seem very interested in in working with supplements. They right. just they just sort of uh, they just sort of write them off as well. It's not proven, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, my 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 question is, why can't the medical system and and uh, and the other health system where you you know you're told to eat your supplements because they're good for you? Well, why why can't they work together? Right. What is the problem? Well, you know, um, the, one of the problems is that you should be able to get all of the nutrients, minerals, vitamins in a healthy, nutritious diet. Um, the, the, you know, I realize turmeric is basically like a spice, um, and you can add that to your food. Um, but, you know, a lot of times supplements are do they do not need to follow the rigorous testing that medications, prescribed medications need to. So they, they don't have to go through all the clinical testing and all the research studies and then people don't have to put all that money into it. Um, and so you can basically bottle up anything <laughs> pretty much. I'm exaggerating slightly. Um, slap a label on it, say it's going to you know, without any evidence. And that's the problem is that medical doctors work um, in an evidence-based care model. Hmm. So, you know, you should be really be able to, and there's a lot of people that capitalize on people um, by selling all sorts of promises, basically. Yes, no, I I understand that, but it's just... uh... I don't know. Like, what what is wrong with taking a fish, uh, a uh, an EPA, uh, a fish 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 oil? In, well, yeah. In I mean, because some people don't like fish. You know, there are certain ones you can you can kind of justify. You know, people don't like to eat fish, so you know, get their omega threes from from a capsule. Vitamin D. A lot of doctors will prescribe you know or recommend because um, you don't need a prescription. Uh, vitamin D, um, B twelve, very important for um, to prevent nerve damage, you know, yeah, well, that's, um, one, absorption. That's, one of the, that's one of the supplements that I'm on is, uh, is B12. Yeah. Uh, to help put it up, uh, build up the blood, the blood, the red blood cells, whatever. Yeah. That's a very good one. Uh, because your vitamin, your B12 diminishes as you age. And so, um, and also people's appetites change as they age. And so they eat less as well. Um, and so, you know, it's not easy to have a, a healthy, nutritious diet, but there are some of them that can be beneficial. But, you know, when you hear, I mean, people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on certain types of whether it be in vitamin C through an intravenous <laughs> line, which is expensive, right. like three and four hundred dollars a pop, um, you know, and all sorts of other supplements or, you know, miracle cures for back pain. They just don't exist. Yeah. Well, I don't you know, take any opioids, the, uh, the turmeric, uh, whatever pains I have, I, uh, I control with, uh, with turmeric. That's, that's awesome. That is fantastic. And you know what? If it works for you and there's no side effects, that's fantastic. I mean, some studies have shown, you know, some possible benefits of turmeric for inflammation, degenerative eye conditions, metabolic syndrome, arthritis. It's anti-carcinogenic. It's uh, it's anti-inflammatory. If you can control inflammation, you can basically control most diseases that are caused by inflammation. Absolutely. And you can do that through a healthy diet, though, as well, through nutrition. Yeah, but, not, but not necessarily with opioids. And I've never heard anybody overdosing on turmeric. So, no. <laughs> and that's probably one of the safer ones. Um, but also, um, you know, there's some that, that aren't safe. And so it's the important thing is to let your doctor know, you know, what supplements, what, you know, herbal supplements you're on because they can mix with certain medications so you know, um, that, that, that makes sense it's just when you when you speak about supplements to a doctor it sort of goes in one ear and out the other i i, I just, you're, uh, you're absolutely correct but i think that you know you're okay with turmeric because it's natural and you know it's uh you know the curcumin has you know is a natural compound within turmeric and as you mentioned has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties so um they're not as largely understood because because they're natural they don't have to do all of the rigorous testing 
because there's more money involved in, in opioids and drugs. There's a lot of money involved in medicine, let me tell you. Yes, absolutely. And and especially in cancer medicine. I mean, I, I think a lot of money is raised in the cancer field. And um, yes. But anyway, I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you. <laughs> me too. I'm, 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 I don't sleep at night because I also have an ileostomy. So oh. it's basically, it's basically my uh, my time clock. I was given a ten percent chance to survive my cancer. Aww. Uh, but uh, and here but, you uh, are. Uh, well, yeah, but the thing is, a lot of it has to do with your mindset. Like uh, I came up with the phrase, "I'm not done yet." Excellent. When I, when I had my heart surgery, I made a note and I stuck it in my baseball cap. And it was the first thing I looked at when I woke up like 20 hours later. <laughs> right now, we are going to go to a caller who is Shauna from Etobicoke, Ontario. Hello, Shauna. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? I've been better. Aww. I won't uh, take up much of your time. I just, um, on the 31st of May, I was talking. I was going up the staircase to my apartment, mm -hmm. and next thing I know, I am lying on the foyer floor. Oh, no. So I don't know, like, I, I don't know what happened, like, to make me pass out like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I hit my head twice on the the uh, windowsill, and then I, when I landed on the foyer floor, my I cut my head very bad. I ended up getting ten staples. Oh no! Yeah, so I'm just one, and now I am. I can't sleep more than two hours, oh. and and I I am fretting like I scream out loud, and I keep. Scaring myself. I don't know what is going on. I went to the clinic a couple of because I have I haven't been back to work since. Oh dear. I'm, I'm 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 just wondering what what could have caused me to black out like that. I mean, good thing I did that because you know what? I would not want to relive that, but my mind is reliving it. I believe. Oh. Uh, I, I can't. Like I'm just thinking like. I because I don't I didn't see anything. I, I'm glad I didn't except right. however um I can see the footage, like they, they wanna show it to me but I don't wanna see it. Right. But I'm just like, um is it my is it my my brain like it it knows what happened and this is causing me to like freak and and I'm like I torment myself all night. Oh, I feel terrible for you. That's just sounds awful. I mean, I, I honestly don't know. I can put some suggestions out there, but it's probably best to speak to your doctor. I mean, it could be post-traumatic uh, response. Uh, it could be something when you hit that happened when you hit your head. Probably a good idea to find out why you um, passed out. Um, well, I had a CAT scan, so I got when I um, so I don't remember. Like, I, I don't remember the fall, obviously. I remember mm -hmm. someone, she saw me, right, and said, I'm calling you an ambulance. Yeah. And I'm like, no, right? And I felt like I weighed a 1,000 pounds. Yeah. Um, but then um, then I don't remember. I got to the uh, hospital via ambulance, and I think I only woke up because I heard my name because the mm -hmm. paramedic was putting in my information. And then I'm like... And I don't remember anything. And I busted yeah. my foot as well, right? So, I mean, uh. that was another thing. But anyway, that's, I'm just concerned about, like, oh, 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 okay. So, oh, the CAT scan. I did have a CAT scan. And the, um, the physician had stated that I have, like, a, you know, you got, there's this, there's this certain part in your brain or in your head that, it should be a certain size, but mine was like a little less. Amygdala? I think so. Mm -hmm. And so that probably, but I don't know how that would cause imbalance because I'm 
I was totally fine, but I guess not, right? Yeah. Well, the amygdala is a small part of your brain, but it has a big job and it's a major processing center for emotions. And it also is related to memories and, and your senses as well. So oh. when it, when it doesn't work as it should, it can contribute to, you know, what you're describing, disruptive feelings and symptoms. I'm not saying that that's what it is. I cannot, I definitely would speak to uh, your healthcare provider about this, but, um, I, but I wish you the best of health and um, hopefully you can sort this out. Thank you so much for your call, Shauna. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you. And I, I love your show, actually. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right. A um, couple of eye-raising facts here for you. Are you one of the Canadians that spends an average of 6.5 hours a day staring at a digital screen for, get this, recreational use? Did you know that we blink half of the usual blink rate when looking at digital devices, which can lead to things like tear evaporation and dry eyes? Joining me on the line from Winnipeg is eye expert, Dr. Luke Small. Good evening, Dr. Small. Hi, hi Maureen. How are you? Can you hear me okay? Uh, I can hear you just fine. Thank you so much. I'm Great. doing Thanks very well. Me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. You're doing well yourself? <laughs> I am. Thank you. I'm staying up late for this. I'm ready to go. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Believe me, I've, I've said to Leo during every single break, I'm so tired today. <laughs> did did no I problem. say that? No. I'm good. I'm like, I'm good. I can't wait to go to bed. <laughs> um, I'm a night just, owl, so we're, we're, oh, we're all good here. Yeah, no Okay, excellent, excellent. All right, so let's talk about, I don't think Canadians or people in general think about uh, eye strain and the digital screens and how much time we're spending looking at our computers, our phones, our iPads, everything. Um, but um, this really can have an impact on one's eye health and have, um, you know, people can suffer with eye strain. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, you know, if you think about it, our eyes weren't really designed to look at something that, whether that's our phone, whether that's a laptop, whether that's a desktop, whether that's a you know, an e-reader. Now we actually, when we're going through exams, we ask what type of device the patient is using because it actually dictates how either we're going to prescribe glasses or talk to them about how to, oh, some tips on how to slow things down and, and take breaks and those kind of things. So it, I think the big one that I like to tell patients is that there's no long-term damage. There's never been a study or evidence to show that, hey, this is going to cause some long-term damage. All of this is short-term. So a lot of us that go on vacation, um, you know, we, we, we stay away, well, not always on our vacations, but sometimes we stay away from our devices or even on a weekend where we're doing less device work, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe from, you know, work versus recreational, we're still using it a lot. But as soon as we are looking at something up close, my analogy is that we're holding dumbbells. And as soon as we look further away, the dumbbells go down. So we're constantly mm. staring at this one device, whatever it is, a little bit more close, more closely and that can be a little tougher on our eyes. Um, mm -hmm. and there's no doubt that we're, you know, if we were all long haul truck drivers looking far away all day, we'd probably have a lot less of these issues. And as you said, when we're staring, we blink a lot less. So I often use, you know, my analogy is uh, that our eyelids are windshield wipers. And if the windshield wipers either aren't going across, you know, our windshield enough, or a lot of people are incomplete blinkers, so they take these little half blinks they start to have symptoms. They get burning eyes, scratchy eyes, stinging eyes. They, I mean, they can have sensitivity to light. You can have, they start to complain to me about redness. Um, feels like something's in there. You know, they can't wear their contacts as long. And interesting, one of the biggest ones I get is people will come in and tell me that I have watery eyes. And then when uh -huh. I tell them that, hey, you have a dry eye, they go, what do you mean? My eye's wet, <laughs> right? And yeah. really that's, that's just the body saying, hey, there's not a proper tear on the surface of the eye. So let's make more water. And that's where the watery eye comes in. Yeah. So when the tears, when we're not blinking enough, looking at these devices, the, the, the tear starts to evaporate off the surface and then our brain says, make more water. So we get these watery eyes, which is interesting. Yeah. And then it can start to affect your vision. Right. So I'm often, I think the, the biggest thing that I'm telling patients, there's a couple of things. I'll say, Hey, take a sticky note Put it on your monitor or whatever it might be, somewhere you, where you sit or where you see it. And number one, it should say eye breaks. And for we, as most eye care professionals, optometrists, we're often saying, 
there's a 20-20-20 rule. Maybe you've heard of that, but every 20 minutes, you know, you want to look away, about 20 feet away for 20 seconds. So there's the 20-20. So you want to take a break. That's me. I just did. Take eye break. <laughs> there you go. And as That's soon as good. you look far away, you're taking some of that strain off. You're letting those dumbbells down, right? So right. that's a key one. The other one, the other sticky note should say blink. Do a big, forcible, you know, close your eyes all the way and do a big blink, especially for you tonight where you're, you know, a little bit more tired. you got to do these big yeah. blinks to, to focus on your screen. This is, right. this, is what, this is what I'm sort of constantly talking to people about. Right. I would definitely say in the last decade or so, the the – you know, now we actually call dry eye a disease, right? So this is a, a chronic thing that a lot of people suffer from. And once you start to list some of these symptoms, people start to go, well, I have that. And then trying to now, how do we treat that? And, and over the last, as I say, decade or so, it's really changed in terms of our treatment modalities and, and trying to make awareness. Like this is, uh, you know, dry eye awareness month. So again, thank you for having me on to kind of talk to people about this. And I think it rings true for a lot of people. Once you kind of start, you know, mentioning these different things, they're like, well, wait a second. I, I have that. I do this. And, you know, and we go from, uh, you know, our three-year-olds that sometimes, and I'm a parent of teenagers. uh, So you can imagine my teenagers and how much screen time they have and the battle I have with that. But even a three-year-old, is going to be looking, unfortunately, oftentimes at a device, even though we might recommend that they don't look at it all that often. But then my 93-year-old is sometimes playing solitaire online for six hours a right. day, right? So <laughs> it's all over the map. July is Dry Eye Awareness Month. My guest is Night Owl and health ex- eye health expert, Dr. Luke Small, who joins me on the line. Dr. Small, thanks so much for staying up late for me. Um, what exactly no is dry eye and how is it caused? So I, I knew you were going to ask me this. And so I'm actually going to read you the latest definition and I'll try and break it down for you. But And, and I may be confusing some people, but the, uh, again, I'll try and simplify it. So dry eye is a multifactorial disease. So it means there's lots of different variables that can cause it of the ocular surface characterized by a loss of homeostasis. And so I'll get into that. You, you, you and I will know what homeostasis is of the tear film and accompanied by ocular symptoms. And some of those symptoms I was just mentioning in which tear film instability and this big word hyperosmolarity, which we use in the definition a lot, causes inflammation of, and damage to the surface and sometimes even some neurosensory things. So I think the, the key here is um, homeostasis is, I always say, is my happy place. Okay, where do I want to be? Like, do I want to be uh, in an evening under a blanket watching a Winnipeg Jets game? That's maybe my happy place. How do we get your <laughs> tears back to their happy place is what I'm always trying to do. And that's how we treat and that's where we're trying to reach. But you can imagine with these different things that can happen to, if we're staring at a device, if we're in a really dry environment, whether that be, you know, uh, a Winnipeg winter, which we often do, is it maybe medication that you're taking? Maybe you've got an autoimmune disorder that causes inflammation, which also causes inflammation. And interesting females, females are, you know, a female over 50 has a 50% chance of dry eye. So primarily my dry eye practice is a lot of females, definitely uh-huh. a higher increase on that risk. So when we talk about this word osmolarity, that really just has to do with how salty are the tears. And if the tears, it's got to have this really perfect sort of composition. And if it's off for a variety of reasons, you're going to have some symptoms. So I always say how salty are those tears? We can actually, a lot of dry eye, um, uh, I'll say clinics now, can actually measure your osmolarity and say, hey, yeah, you've got some inflammation. How do we control that? Right. And again, how much are you using a screen? You know, what, what kind of environment are you in? You know, how old are you? All these different things that happen. So I think the big one that I, I'd, I'd like to mention is that, you know, no matter what, if you've got any of these symptoms, make sure you're seeing your optometrist. Make sure you have an eye exam. Make sure you get a baseline. Because sometimes the eye strain can just come from not having the proper glasses on, right? So uh-huh. when, you're, when you're looking up close, it's sometimes a little different prescription than what you need to see far. And that can, can be... For depending on your age and things like that. So that also plays a symptom into your eye strain as well. And the um, this is really about eye health versus, you know, could, you know, spending exorbitant amounts of time on uh, online or staring at screens, can that impact your, your vision, your nearsightedness or farsightedness or the floaties or yeah, anything to do with that? I, 
Correct. Yeah. So there, again, there's no long-term damage from staring at these things. You could, you know, if you're staring, I, I get lots of patients where there's because they're focused so hard. And again, there's my dumbbell analogy. They'll get up to leave for the day. They go to drive home and they almost are in this focusing spasm because they've, they've been sitting there holding the dumbbell. Now the dumbbells go down and they can't focus properly. Mm-hmm. And some people with a jump focus, imagine they're looking at their phone and they're jumping to their TV and they have a harder time going back and forth. And especially, again, if your tear film's not doing what it's supposed to, if we go back to the ocular health of the tear, it plays about 30% in terms of how you see. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you don't have a proper tear film, you're not going to be seeing well. But again, I guess I, I think that's where you, you know, again, if you have some of these symptoms, make sure you're seeing your eye care professional, make sure you're seeing your optometrist to determine, hey, is there truly something that I should be doing to, to look after these things? And should we be putting eye moisturizers in? Should we be using, yeah. you know, the, the tear, the lacrolube or the natural tears? Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine now you go to the pharmacy, there's about 40 different kinds. So it gets uh-huh. a little overwhelming. <laughs> you know, we've got now, we talk a lot of about when people are using them multiple times a day, I find most of my patients just don't use them enough. They'll come uh-huh. in and they'll say, oh, I'm using these so often. I, and I'll say, well, how often? And they'll say a couple of times a week. And I'll say, well, really, you should probably be using these a couple of times a day. Right. But really, and I think what I would tell you, Maureen, is that drops are only step one. Like that's just sort of tip of the iceberg in terms of how we're treating. You know, then I'm, then I'm getting into high, high level omega-3s. There's great studies to say that omega-3s can actually help the oil glands and the eyelids that help. You need oil in your tears so they don't evaporate. So omega-3s. There's great. a heating mask, right? So a heating mask that uh, you put in the microwave for about 20 seconds. You put that over your eyes for about 10 minutes. It feels good. It's a spa. And then I have people actually massaging their lids to get the old oil out. I, these, these oil glands that you might be familiar with, these meibomian glands, they can turn into like butter sticks. So a lot of people, we're now, you know, every patient, I'm kind of pressing and double checking to see how these glands are working. Something we would have never done before. I, I've been doing this over 20 years and when I graduated, we didn't ever do that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Now we're doing it all the time to look and, and evaluate, okay, how well are these glands working? So now, okay, we've got, we've got, now we've got drops, we've got masks, we've got omega-3s. Now we've even got medicines that are specific to try and control those inflammations. So you can imagine we could use a steroid if it was really bad, but we can't mm-hmm. use steroids long-term. So we've got other, other spe- specific drops that are designed for dry eye. And now we've even got in-office procedures where we're doing special treatments to heat these glands and, you know, sort of express the glands and doing all those kind of things. So you'll get people on all levels. And some people feel they're doing everything they can with just a drop. And I say, oh, I got lots more in my tool belt yeah. to help you out, right? Yeah. So many great tips, Dr. Small. Unfortunately, we're up against the clock and I have to let no you problem. go. But we'll definitely get you Absolutely. back to talk more you, about this. Thank you so much. For sure. Thanks for having me. Have a great night. You're- Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.